This Week in Startups is brought to you by Envision. Get Envision for startups with unlimited users on the full suite of Envision tools, plus enterprise-level security and support at envision.com slash twist. That's I-N-V-I-S-I-O-N dot com slash twist. LinkedIn. You need LinkedIn jobs to find the right people for your business. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash twist and get $50 off your first job post. And Salesforce Essentials. Jumpstart sales and support by leveraging the world's number one CRM at a startup price point at just $25 a month per user. Go to salesforce.com slash twist for an additional 50% off and a free onboarding call. Upcoming launch events. Apply for the next Launch Accelerator cohort. Applications are due July 18th. Learn more and apply at launchaccelerator.co. You can also apply for our next Founder University, September 9th and 10th in San Francisco at founder.university. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups. I'm your host, Jason Calacanis, back from the Launch Festival in Sydney. Thank you to the people of Australia for being so warm and supportive of our little startup operation. We met so many great companies. We doubled the number of people who attended the event. And most proud of, 50 companies got to demo in the demo pit for free. 2,000 founders got tickets for free. Uh, and we had 21 companies on stage, again, presenting for free. We don't try to make money off of the startups. We flipped these conferences on their head and said, instead of charging people to come and making money from the conference, what if we pay people to present at the conference instead of making them pay in the form of an investment? Last year, we invested in three great companies at the Launch Festival Sydney. And this year, we have seven that we're going into due diligence with. Maybe we'll invest in one, maybe all seven. We'll see. Time will tell. Uh, and we'll be making a decision about what the host city for Launch Festival 2020 through 2023 will be. We're going to do a three-year deal. Could be with Sydney, could be with another city in uh, Australia, could be with another city in the world. Who knows? We're going to make that decision over the next six months. Uh, this is the podcast where we talk about founders, startups, entrepreneurship, and building products that change the world. Back in 2013, I remember somebody saying, check out this incredible mailbox app. Gmail sucked at the time. It was free. That was great. But the interface sucked. We all hated it. And this gorgeous, elegant app came out called Mailbox. And I said, this is amazing. Everybody in the industry went crazy for it. And then 37 days later, Drew Houston, who launched at our conference 12 years ago with Dropbox, didn't win, was one of the like weaker presentations to be candid. People just didn't get the power of the cloud at that time, bought Mailbox for $100 million. And as big companies are apt to do, they shut it down. And the founder of that company, Gentry Underwood, is on the podcast. Gentry, I saw on the Twitter, as one does, as one, uh, does. As one does, that you have a new company called Navigator. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what? That I, we, We've met, I think, at a Sequoia event now and again. Yeah, I'm not sure where we have either, but we definitely have. It was something like one of the scout events or something. And uh, I know we're on a couple mailing lists. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I was like, let me just search my inbox because I know that that product was so good and it got sold and there's a lesson there. Mm. And whatever you're doing next, and it happens to be navigator.com, which I'm going to see for the first time today, you raised some money for that. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about Aspen, Yep. which is- Aspen is Navigator, yeah. Is Navigator. Yeah. Uh, so we'll figure out what that is. Um, and also you uh, are the co-founder of Bring a Trailer. Bring a Trailer, yeah. Yeah. So welcome That's to right. the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Oh, well, thanks for saying that. Uh, I'm glad that some people actually 
know what the podcast is when I email them now. <laughs> used to be I would email people. I'd say, I have a podcast. And they'd say, you have an iPod? I said, no, no. Podcast. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's like a radio show on an iPod. And they said, you can do radio on iPod? No, 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 no. It's like a radio show. Um, so tell me, Mailbox, how did you decide to build that? What was so special about it? And tell me about that 37-day sprint because that is uncommon yeah. in what we do. Yes, it was uncommon for me as well and for yeah. the whole team. Yeah. Uh, Mailbox really began actually as a different app. It was called Orchestra. Yeah. We, we, built a, we built Orchestra. The team really had this vision of transforming what it meant to work together as a team. Mm. And we sort of found that these phones in our pockets were really a, a brand new way of going about uh, working together, and it felt at the time, this was really at the beginning of the App Store being a thing, and everybody just kind of getting going and learning what an iPhone was capable of. Uh, there were a lot of gaps in what was available, and one of them at the time was a to-do list. There really wasn't a good to-do list for the for yeah. the phone. We felt like since we had these supercomputers in our pockets that were interconnected, there might be a, a chance to use that moment of a to-do list as a way of uh, creating lightweight collaboration and sort of spearheading a better way of working together through the mobile device. Mm. So we started off building what we called Orchestra To Do. It was a shared to-do list. The whole vision was, let's make it as easy as possible for me to put something on somebody else's to, uh, list as it is to put on my own. Which people love. Yeah, it, it worked pretty well. Um, but I, I was being a little facetious because <laughs> I do that myself. We have Asada now. And one of my favorite things to do is to just like assign people stuff in Asana and then just let, see if they notice it or not. It's such a delightful thing yeah. to do. But I kind of feel like Slack has overpowered the entire uh, organization now. Once an organization clicks into that, and then the to-do list really works nicely between those two. Yeah. Because you can kind of get your updates and then we do... Have you ever read the book Checklist Manifesto? No. I, it, I came up a lot when we were doing Mailbox. To, yeah. So yeah. I, I found out about this because I've, I heard Jack from uh, Twitter force everybody to read it. Mm. I read it. And it, it's an amazing book about to-do lists because it turns out when they went to two-engine and four-engine planes, everybody's like, you can't have a two-engine or four-engine plane because it's too much for a pilot to handle, even with a co-pilot. And they kept crashing the planes. Uh, and they said, yeah, we'll just make some checklists. And then we'll have everybody go through the checklists. And the pilots are like, we don't need checklists. We're pilots. Hmm. Like, can you imagine the arrogance and ego of a pilot? Yeah. It's like only surpassed by a doctor, <laughs> which is the other case. So then they made these checklists. People went through the checklists and the plane stopped crashing. Hmm. And then the other example they give is doctors who were doing heart surgery and surgeons refused to do checklists because they're gods, right? Hmm. Like pilots are gods. Same ego. Um, so they had the nurses do the checklists. Because, oh, well, nurses are just nurses, whatever. They're women. Let them do the checklist because this is, you know, during the 50s, I guess. And then people stopped dying. Hmm. So they did a very simple thing. They put a tent over the surgical tools when they had been cleaned. So they would remove the tent. Hmm. So just a simple device, but they would go through the checklist. Yep. And at that time, did Wonderlist exist at that time? or uh, Wonderlist became a thing while we were working on orchestra and yeah. really uh, took off. It hmm. was a, a big lesson for us. One of the things they did very well is they distributed – an okay app. I mean, it was good, but uh, the quality level varied dramatically, but they distributed on a, on a number of different platforms at once mm. and made the interconnective ability for your to-do list to appear everywhere yeah. uh, uh, possible. And that, that helped them get a lot of traction very quickly. It was mm. a pretty remarkable thing to watch. Just the very fact that you could get the same list on your computer 
on your Android device, if you had one on your iPhone, if you had one, uh, it was a good early win and they spread like wildfire. It was a, yeah. it was a humbling moment for us because we were trying to build this beautiful, very carefully crafted product uh, and we were getting laps run around us by, by Wonderlist. Is that when you learned that you have to be multi-platform out of the gate or is it specific to certain products that you have to be multi-platform? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think the, the difference, the, we might even ask the question more broadly and ask, like, in, in what strategies is making sure the information moves across the screen the, fir the first p problem you want to solve as opposed to one you might come to later? Uh, certainly having access to your basic information across all your devices is, it's like an, an ante now. You, you, yeah. can't, you can't really offer a service without Table it. stakes. Yeah. It is table stakes. Yeah. yeah, very much. As we say in the poker world. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you're a fan of poker. You too? Uh, not not me, unfortunately, no. <laughs> but you have money and you want to learn. So this is a good combination. Oh, maybe the second hour we can play that, a few hands. That's our, that's our standard joke in the poker world. Do you play poker? They're like, no, do you have money? <laughs> okay, that's a great proxy for learning. The money yeah. makes it real. You have skin in the game. Yeah. Uh, so you're doing orchestra, Wonderlist comes out, yeah. trounces you, yeah. demoralizes everybody. Well, the, it was certainly an eye-opener to see that our our basic assumptions of what were going to lead to growth weren't right. But the big frustration for us is we were trying to create this, this new kind of inbox, this place where everything that I needed to do, whether I came up with it or somebody else on my team came up with it, they all lived in one place. Mm. And as a vision, that seemed really great. Um, and we found actually a lot of our early customers on orchestra were like those honeydew kind of cases, mm. girlfriend and boyfriend or husband and wife or partners of any kind. Uh, and Wait, what'd you call it? Honeydew? Yeah. Honeydew list turns out to be a term for this. Uh, really? Yeah. Oh, honeydew, like, not the melon, but honey, could yeah, you do this for me? Exactly. Oh, I have that list. Yeah. I have that list at It home. turned out to be one of our most popular cases. Uh, I have a great piece of marriage advice. Embrace the honeydew. Embrace the honeydew list. That was, I was always just like, please don't put anything else on my list. Now what I do is on the weekend, I'm like, hey, it's the weekend, it's Saturday, Sunday. Is there anything on, that I need to, that we need to get done around the house because I got a couple hours? Boy, if you do that and you're proactive yeah. at your partner, that's a huge yeah. win. Yeah, you're, you're clearing win. off all the like the noise so you can get back to being. Yeah, they're like, oh, no, no, there's nothing important. Yeah, oh, okay, good. great. Let's get back to it. <laughs> uh, so it was all honeydew, which means there's no business. That was one problem, yeah. And the, the, the other issue we began to see is, I'll, I'll take the case of myself. Uh, my wife and I at the time were uh, we were sharing a lot of tasks with one another, one another on orchestra, and I had a little yeah. a little son who we were trying to get him a birthday present and wanted to find this old toy that I had growing up that existed on eBay. And she oh my said, god, what toy is it? Constructs. Do you remember? Constructs? I remember Constructs. Yeah, it was not Legos. No, it was like sticks that yeah, went they into were, like hub, hub and yeah. spokeish. Yes, yes. Yeah, it was almost it. like little steel beams turned into plastic yeah, yeah, yeah. pieces and that kind I of thing. I can remember that from the Saturday morning yeah. uh, cartoon lineup. Yeah, totally. Uh, Try explaining that to your kid. Well, I, giving them was the, giving no, them no, a set not of the constructs. That cartoons were available <laughs> in a window from seven a.m. to twelve thirty on Saturdays on three channels. And then one channel on Sundays. Yeah. And that was the window for cartoons. Totally. I remember when my kids were little, we had something called Saturday morning cartoons. But Saturday I meant, morning. let's just sit around the iPad together. But they started saying, hey, dad, Saturday morning cartoons. <laughs> yeah, the more you know. <laughs> yeah, totally. I had this day where uh, my wife sent me a handful of these eBay auctions for this, you know, collections of mm -hmm. old constructs. And she asked me, like, which one should we get? And this was a sort of use case that I had hoped that would be uh, a good use case for orchestra. And I had this, you know, defeated moment where I realized even 
even my wife, who might have been the most motivated person on the planet yeah. to in, in, uh, encourage adoption of this new way of working, was still sending me to-dos and email. Yeah. And it was this realization that everybody was already sending each other tasks all the time mm. in the inbox that they all used. It was just this inbox known yeah. as email. And that allowed us to sort of take all the learnings and approaches that we had found to make these, these moments of working together fast and efficient and delightful, but shift the strategy away mm-hmm. from approaching those uh, in a to-do list and look at them in the inbox of email instead. Yeah. And that kind of gave rise to like, okay, let's, let's, let's start over. Let's take everything we've learned, but let's start over and apply this to an email client instead. It's interesting how everybody has this holy grail of the one repository yes. of what I need to do. Yes. From Lotus Notes. Yes. If you remember that. Yeah, very much. Yeah. yeah. I was the Lotus Notes programmer, which meant scripter. <laughs> okay. Which means you're a script kitty. You had to write scripts at Sony in the 90s. But that was Ray Ozzy's big thing. And then he did another... Ray Ozzy did a second swing at um, like the Lotus Notes what they used to call groupware. Mm-hmm. Before the word social existed, it was groupware. But Ray Ozzy did a, another startup after that. But when we get back, I want to talk about the launch of Mailbox to the moment you get the phone call, we want to buy it. Mm. When we get back on This Week in Startups. You already know Envision as the product design platform used by thousands of startups. All my startups use it. and. It's also used by 100% of the Fortune 100. Well, now they have a new offering with startups in mind. It's called Envision for Startups. And they will help you streamline your workflow from design to development and will make your startup life so much more manageable. Envision for Startups gives you the full suite of Envision tools, all packaged with a startup in mind. Get unlimited accounts, and that's what you need. You want everybody to have a voice in product development. Some people a little bit of less of a voice, some people a little bit more. It's one of the nice things about having a SaaS product with unlimited seats like that. Everybody gets to have a voice and you get to centrally control that. Plus, you get the enterprise-level security and custom support with InVision tools. It's so simple. And this is freehand collaboration. It lets you draw just like you're using a pencil and your uh, beautiful moleskin. Boom. You just do that all online from concept all the way to development. So here is your call to action. I want you to go to Envision.com slash twist. That's I-N-V-I-S-I-O-N. Envision. You know how to spell it, I-N-V-I-S-I-O-N dot com slash twist. As in this week in startups, streamline your workflow with unlimited users on the full suite of InVision tools plus enterprise level security and support. So all your designs, all your great ideas are safe and secure for your team to iterate on. Go ahead and check it out, envision.com slash twist. Let's get back to this amazing episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to This Week in Startup. My guest, Gentry Underwood. He created Mailbox and has a record for selling it for $100 million in 37 days, about $3 million a day. It's good work if you can have it. You launch Mailbox, everybody is starred for a new email client. But you're up against Microsoft, Google, and Yahoo providing email for free with unlimited storage on a global basis. Mm-hmm. You can have as many accounts as you want. And they have 1,000 engineers each working on this. Mm-hmm. And you're a little startup with how many people? We had, I think, 14 at the time. Is going to take on three of the giants with unlimited resources, technical, money, and user base. Mm. 
what was it in the product that you said could be special versus those juggernauts? Yeah, great question. You know, email is this funny thing because it's been a part of uh, the internet as long as the internet has been uh, something. I remember using Pine in college of as a, uh, uh, a Unix-based shell and. Um, most everybody at that time who was an active email user had almost all of their experience using email on these large, larger devices like laptops and yep. desktops. Full in which keyboard. You got a full keyboard, you got a fairly large screen. Yeah. And the workflows that evolved were workflows that took advantage of all that real estate. I think one of the things that we were able to leverage at that moment in time is now we were all carrying these tiny little computers in our pockets that were mm -hmm. quite powerful, but had a very different form factor. And they created then a bunch of interesting design challenges. How do you how do you take all of these workflows that people are familiar with and bring them into this much smaller space mm. where the the environment is much more constrained and actually people's attention is, are as well. Instead of where at my computer I might sit down for five, 10 minutes, maybe an hour and work on my email, I might be checking my mail while waiting for a coffee or waiting for the bus or even yeah. driving whether or not I should be. It's a different cognitive it's a very different approach, experience. Right? Yeah. Like when you're at the desktop and I have my giant, I just upgraded to a 49-inch wide monitor that does wow. two inputs. It's bizarre. Um, and when I sit at my desktop, I'm thinking, okay, let's, let's bang out 20, 30, 40 emails. Yeah. When I'm on my phone, I'm thinking, let me just scan. It's like a triage moment, isn't it's it? It's a triage moment. Let me delete the yeah. stuff I don't need. Let me store the stuff is important for yeah. me to do on my desktop. And if there's something I can do a one sentence or less, I might consider doing it then. Yeah. Did you understand that cognitive mindset? And how did you learn that? Did well, you do focus groups or did you just look at your own behavior? Uh, I had I had come before starting uh, Orchestra, which uh, built Mailbox. I had been at IDEO for four years working mm. as a designer. And there we had studied quite a bit the way that these devices were changing behavior. Oh, wow. And one of the things that became very clear was that that, that difference that you, you mentioned is, was very common, that there was a lot of what we called stubbing activity or the creation of starting something that you might finish later or doing these little gestural moments as opposed to the broader work they were used to doing on a, on a large machine. In part, that's because of the actual like ergonomics of the device and the mm. fact that it's just not very nice to sit in front of a tiny little screen for an hour. Yeah. But part of it is the fact that you're bringing this computer with you into the world as opposed to sitting at a desk and stepping into its world. Mm. And that, that changes your expectations and that changes the activities you, you want to engage in. So we, we definitely use that mindset as like looking at the inbox and saying, well, if we're going to build the last inbox, which I think we also had that vision at the time, uh, and we we're going to use this moment in time where the form factor has changed so dramatically as our opportunity to wedge in in spite of there mm -hmm. being these much larger players, uh, what, are the, what are the moments that are really poorly served by the tools today? And we found that most of the most of the email apps were really trying to cram all that functionality, all that desktop-like behavior into this tiny screen. And therefore, they just created this feeling of uh, this burdensome kind of being trapped by this email com coming in all the time and you're not really knowing how to deal with it in a quick way. It's like porting something to a new operating system, except it's a different form factor. So everybody made that same mistake. Yes from people who wanted to do video editing, from people who wanted to do PowerPoint, like you have to start over. Yes. Because the gestures, the form factor, they define how you're gonna work and what you're gonna work on from what you seem to have said. And you, were you the first to figure out the, 
uh, hey, if we just swipe left or right, yep. and that's the fastest processing and tagging. We were certainly the first to do that in email. Yep. Uh, the idea actually <clears throat> came from an app called Clear that we watched. Clear. It was also in the in the to do space. It was. A, <gasps> oh yes, I remember. Yeah. They had they had built this beautiful simple little to do list, and you could just check off the items by swiping them to the right, and it felt uh, so good. Uh, and we there was something about that gesture. Yeah. 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 So we we picked that up and brought it into the inbox. And I think a big part of what made our launch so successful is we put together a video that showed what on the surface looked like any of the other mail clients of the day. Yeah. You're going through an inbox and you're seeing, oh, here here are the messages in my inbox. I've seen this a thousand yeah. times. But then a thumb comes on the screen and drags one of it to the right and a little green check appears and it whisks away. Oh. And that was this moment of like, oh, Oh, you could do that. Yes. And that that feeling of for the first time giving the user a, a bit of returned control over something that they felt uh, controlled them yeah. was, I think, a big part of why there was an, such a, a a a positive reception to the. Product. And it was a thumb. Your thumb is right there. Yeah. It is actually turns out to be the easiest gesture possible. Mm -hmm. Like if we had an eye interface where blinking mm -hmm. was able to do commands like. Maybe you could like, if you're capable of doing a left and a right wing, could do like left, delete, right? You know, yeah. like archive. I'm trying to think of like something even more efficient. It would probably be the brain interface. Yeah. Which is going to come. And it probably will work in that exact way. The brain interface will probably have like some very simple moving the pong mm -hmm. kind of paddle mm -hmm. approach, which is like I, I can move an object left or right. So it actually turns out mailbox... 4.0 with a neural link would be just just think about where you wanted to just go. Just think like yeah. archive, or you mm -hmm. would actually imagine if you could think a word and label it, and just and just be like startup pitch. That'd be pretty nice. Shopping, and it would just. Doo, doo, doo. Yeah. I mean, that's why people are obsessed with that yeah, specific it's concept. Very promising as a concept. What were what was the initial download adoption? moment like? Did you do yeah. PR? Did you do marketing? Did you do a wait list? What led it to become a phenomenon? Yeah. Were you on stage at one of the iPhone launches? And what was the iPhone that you developed it on? Was it the th iPhone 3G Three. or the iPhone 4? It was a 3G. 3G, yeah. which for people who don't know, was really the when the iPhone actually worked. Mm -hmm. Because- Do you remember what the first white iPhone was? I don't quite remember. I think it might've been a 4 but I remember when, yeah. when we made our video, we used a white iPhone, and that was yeah. a big no-no in Apple's world still. And when we, went, when we took... When we because took, they hadn't launched it and you were going to uh, steal they, their thunder? They launched it, but they really wanted only their products to be shown using mm -hmm. a white iPhone. It was, it was a little, little draconian. Um, but they, I, they've I, got their unique outlook on life. They, they do. Yeah. It's uh, good to have an opinion. I mean, that's, it's carried us so far, that strong point of view. It doesn't. It? I mean, did yeah. you learn that at IDEO? Was I, strong point of view an IDEO thing, an Apple thing, or uh, I, a designer I, thing? I well, it's a great question. Designers are certainly known for having strong points of view. Yeah. IDEO prides itself on human-centered design, which is really about a process of solving problems by trying to build empathy for the user. Mm. I think Apple Apple has been more for us the influence of uh, the value of a strong point of view and holding to that uh, just from a pure aesthetic or um, even philosophical perspective. Yeah. And just because you believe in it and because it feels right to you, you stick with it. Uh, I think Apple's done that successfully, maybe better than any other company in the world. Which is more important, having empathy for the use case and the user 
or having that strong design point of view that you feel, Johnny Ive, in consultation with his team and Steve Jobs, when they look at it in their design lab and they pull the cover, cover off the five versions of the next thing yeah. and their gut tells them this one, which is more important, do you think, ultimately to the success of a product and why? Well, the, one of the oldest adages in design is that form follows function. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a very wise reason for that. Yeah. You you need to have a product resonate deeply with what it's capable of mm -hmm. before before the other aesthetic and usability issues come into yeah. play. If uh, Apple made really beautiful aluminum uh, squares that were not also computers, I yeah. doubt they would they would sell very well, no matter how beautifully the edges were mitered. It's that combination of doing things that really increase our capacities as humans and then doing them in ways that transmit a lot of care mm. that seems to uh, really uh, capture imagination. It's interesting if you were to do that like standard X, Y axis that we put in every pitch deck or whatever, and it was like design aesthetic or design point of view and high function. Yes. It's like who lives in that top right upper quadrant today? Mm. And I guess one would argue... Apple always has. Tesla, perhaps. Yeah, they've, Tesla's had a harder time building things that are, I mean, they're certainly uh, very functional. And, and I, I think I heard Elon once say that the Model X is sublime, which is yeah. a nice word for yeah. the, all the details coming together to create a product that's so profoundly ahead of anything else. It confused people that was yeah. so far ahead. Do you have one? I do. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's like the windshield and the gullwing doors yeah, are so confusing to people. They are. They catch attention. But what, what makes that car so special is the way that the car disappears when you're in it. Yes. All the details coming together to create an experience of almost floating in a pod. It is pod-like because it, it of is. that front windshield. Yes. Mostly it's that front windshield. People, I think... It, he was so far ahead on that one yeah. that the windshield got left behind. But when you have a windshield that continues behind the back of your head, yeah. every now and again, I look up in my Model, Model X and I'm just like, the world is amazing. Like, I don't know if you've ever taken it to like Tahoe or something. I but have. I'm driving it like around Truckee. Watch the trees. And you're watching it's the incredible. trees and you're just like, this is like being in a movie. It's incredible. Yeah. It really leverages the fact that the car knows how to drive itself. It's yeah. a and that's a good, I think, good example of where the form is really emerging from the functionality that's made possible through through AI in that case. Yeah, it's super interesting as a founder when you have an engineer like Elon as a founder adding, you know, some design folks to his team. Yes. But it's an engineering-led product. Yes. And then you have Apple, which is a design-led product, I think, mm -hmm. primarily. Mm -hmm. I think you would agree. Mm -hmm. Where do you put yourself on that spectrum? Uh I think culturally the teams I'm a part of tend to be more design, a bit more design-led than yeah. engineering-led. I would say that a great solution has to be quite successful on both axes. Yeah, though. it does, doesn't yeah, it? Today, it really especially. It, especially if you're talking about doing anything in software or hardware, which is even harder. It, you've got to build something that's from a, a design sense and from a functionality sense, just masterful. I just remember the 90s where it was like this Nokia phone or this BlackBerry or this Palm Pilot. Like yeah. the... The fact that you had a computer in your hand kind of let them have the design follow a little bit. Yes. General Magic had some interesting Sony devices, yes. but yeah, it wasn't singular. It was like one team was making General Magic and Sony was making the hardware. They were making the software. It really was Apple that said, like, enough with this nonsense. This needs to be one group making both. Yeah. 
it really was the innovation when you think about it. Yeah, Steve used to like to say that Apple lived at the intersection of technology and liberal arts, which I think was his his way of expressing this this intersection being so important to build things that are powerful but also profoundly human in their in their vision that they care about the user as much as they care about the abilities that the we're getting. Yeah. Can you talk about what you worked on at IDEO? Uh, well, I was. Yeah, my primary role there was actually to build systems for IDEO. I came in uh, as what's called a human factor specialist. I oh my been... God, that was my obsession when I was a psychologist. Is that major. right? Explain what human factor well, human factors factors in the, is. In the broadest sense, is just the study of the ways that humans interact with the objects around us in the world. It often bends towards ergonomics in the academic setting. Uh, at IDEO, it bended more towards re research methodologies to really understand the problem that design was intending to solve and build an empathic understanding of the user that is going to be using whatever it is that you're How creating. did you learn human factor? What was your degree in? Uh, Where did at, you go? I went to Stanford and I studied uh, human-computer interaction okay. uh, through the Symbolic Systems Program and also studied design through the School of Art there. Huh. Uh, and then worked in software design for a little while and, and burnt out on it during the first dot-com craze. It was a very strange time to be doing software design because uh, the way that venture funding worked, uh, you, you tended to fund things because the next round of VC money was coming and not because there were real people using it. And that created yeah. all sorts of weird... Who you were servicing got flipped. It got flipped. That's it got flipped. Well you were servicing the financial gods yeah. and they were servicing... And they were very Quick fickle. Money. They had no idea what to invest in at the time. The hypotheses were changing so quickly. It was so dumb. They were just like, yeah, spin your your internet assets out, create yeah. a second company, ZiffDavis.net, you know, ToysRUs.com, yeah. and you'd have your dot-com company and then that. your retail company. So you'd have ToysRUs and ToysRUs.com. ToysRUs.com would become worth a billion. Toys yeah. R Us would be worth 100 million. I remember that. And then people would be like, yeah. oh, wait a second. We're competing with each other. Yeah. All right, when we yeah. get back, I want to see the new product, Navigator. And I, I, I want to get back to the first, the just recap and put a pin in the um, and an exclamation point on the end of the 37-day journey to 100 million when we get back on This Week in Startups. Hiring is always hard, and it's getting really hard today because we've got unemployment at historic lows. Also, many people just throw a job posting out there they put it on their job board or some random message board or dump it in your slack room that's not going to work it's not going to work but what is going to work is to go ahead and use linkedin linkedin is where 610 million members visit and they do that to make connections learn and grow as professionals and sometimes they're looking to discover new job opportunities or sometimes they're passive job seekers and that is the secret not everybody's going to a job board every day looking for jobs, but LinkedIn will present opportunities to those hundreds of millions of LinkedIn users. And here's how easy it is. You just simply go to LinkedIn and it's really easy because you say where you're looking for the person, you put in your job, you can then look for what experiences you want them to have. How many years of marketing, you set a budget, boom. It's up and running and you will find somebody quickly. How do I know this? Because we found two of our 15 team members on LinkedIn very recently. Sir Charles, our new director, and our marketing manager, Maureen. You can create these job listings quickly and easily and I'm gonna give you $50 right now. That's right, $50 right now for your first job posting. I want you to linkedin.com slash twist. Go to linkedin.com slash twist and you will get $50 off 
your first job posting terms and conditions, of course, apply. Let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, we got a winner of a guest today. You brought it, Gentry. Interesting yeah, discussion. You. It's good to have somebody with a perspective and a lot of experience. IDEO to Mailbox and now Navigator. Uh, let's just wrap up the uh, Mailbox since it's such an amazing journey. You're, how did it get so hot so fast? Mm. Uh, I think the order of operations there was that we we first put together this video to give people a sense of what it could feel like to do their email on a, on their phone and to really capture what we felt was the potential of this product. We launched it a, what we thought was a few weeks ahead of the app because back then you could bring a lot of people to the app store at once and sort of uh, maybe get onto that top 25 list and we were sort of aiming to do that. And we put the video out, uh, had a Ellis Hamburger wrote a piece for us on the on the Verge, and that was really all that we did. We didn't have any PR or marketing to speak of, uh, and we had really set for ourselves a goal of a hundred thousand views of the video. We thought if if we did that, we would you know celebrate. And I, I it was we had several million views in the first twenty four hours, and it wow. was this it was this moment of on the marketing side being so excited because we had built something that people were excited about. <laughs> And on the engineering side, I remember looking and there was a lot of very white faces uh, uh, in the room because the way the mailbox worked in order to create this very fast experience of email, we checked email for the user on the server, concatenated it down to a much smaller footprint and sent that to the phone. But that meant there was some pretty heavy, heavy lifting to do every time a new user came online. Mm. We'd have to crawl maybe a thousand emails and really package stuff up. So it was a pretty significant undertaking on the server to create a fast experience on the phone. And there was this realization that all the people that were now spreading this video to one another and we're going to go try and download this app, uh, we weren't going to be able to service them all at once. Mm. So we very quickly in invented something else, which was a waiting list mm -hmm. where we showed people the one piece of information we had, which was their place in line, how many people were in front of them. And then based on a suggestion by Josh Elman, uh, how many people were behind them as well. Josh Elman, venture capitalist at Greylock, before that at Twitter, created the onboarding at Twitter before that. Now he's at- Robinhood. Robinhood, uh, one of our investments. Yeah. Huzzah. Uh, and what, do you, what was he doing then? Uh, he was at Greylock, I believe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, his, his piece of advice was, if you have to wait in line, the one, <laughs> the one thing that'll make you feel better about it is knowing how many people are behind you. Hmm. And that, we so we threw that up as a way of basically- Oh my God, that's such a great answer. Yeah. <laughs> Because you do do that as a human. Yeah. You're like, my suffering <laughs> right. is my suffering is best gauged by how many people are suffering more. It's a, what is that rule? It's, it's we a, have to come up with a name. That could be Elman's rule. Yeah. Your suffering <laughs> is proportional <laughs> to the suffering of the people, yeah. but the average person's suffering. Yeah. So if you're waiting an hour to get through customs and the line is four hours, you that's delightful. So yeah, it's true. Uh, if you don't, you're you don't waiting, want to be the last person in that one hour If line. you're waiting for half an hour and the average is five minutes, yeah. you are pissed. <laughs> that's true. It's really interesting that's about really suffering true. when you think about it because you meet people, I'm not going to say millennials, <clears throat> millennials, and they're just like, they never lived through 1990, 91 when we came into the industry when you couldn't get a job. Mm. Like there were no jobs. Mm. Remember that when it was 20% unemployment, like Bush, whatever, post-Reagan recession, I was I was still in school, but yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, you got out right after that, yeah, I and did. you got you caught the dot com wave. I guess I, things yeah, got a little yeah, bit better. Yeah, if you were in tech, I did, I, I fortunately was able to miss that wave, but I remember oh, a lot of so bad, yeah, lot, so bad. Like you were lucky to get a five hundred dollar a week job at Condé Nast. Wow, Condé Nast was pay five six hundred a week, no benefits for the first year. You get your benefits second year. No no time off. Hmm. No paid time off. Just 
500 bucks a week kind of situation. Oh. Yeah, it was crazy. So when do you get the call from Drew and Dropbox that they want to buy it? And what was their thesis? Well, the thesis at the time, uh, Drew was very excited about this idea that the home screen was like, it was almost like a new folder, a new mm -hmm. finder, mm -hmm. that where there were files and folders on our laptops, we were going to be using apps, and that there was effectively a battle for that home screen. And, and the, the thesis that I think brought us over into that com company was that Dropbox wanted to, to win the inbox and wanted to win the photo album and really yeah. was going to try and go play that, that game. It turns out to be a pretty hard game to play when your competitors own the devices. Uh, because yeah, they can default. Yeah, they can provide defaults all the defaults. Defaults matter. Defaults end up mattering quite a bit. Yeah. Bundling matters, bundling. actually, in that case. Yeah, that's right. It's bundling more than defaults, right? Yeah. So uh, that, that was the hypothesis. Uh, we, we, yeah, when we had so many users and uh, a fairly small team, we realized we needed to scale our engineering team quickly in order to meet all the demand. And so we, we found ourselves in this place where we could either raise a Series B and uh, try and scale the engineering team ourselves, or we could join a company that believed in what we were doing and, and could bring engineering resources. And you had raised a Series A from whom? From CRV. It was SAR. Oh, Gerber. really? Yeah. SAR? Yeah. Oh, I love SAR. He's I great. Too. He Charles River Venture CRV was yeah. like the vulnerable Boston-based firm, I believe, yeah. Charles River. Their presence is bigger out here now than on the East Coast. Oh, it's been bigger out here for yeah. like, I think, a decade. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, uh, DevDot uh, and uh, Bill Tai was there before mm -hmm. that and George Zachary, my friend. Yep. So that was a pretty great team. Really great team. So they invested, what, $3 million for 25%, uh, $5 million for 20%? Yeah, we did a $5 million Series A. Okay. We had done a seed of about, I think, 680 k before that. So they own 20% of the company. And this is going to be a 5X, which is nice for them or so, maybe yeah, 10X. Yeah. I don't know if we ever disclosed the actual price, but yeah. 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 Okay. So, so the, something before in, it was $100 million or whatever. Yeah. So if they, the normal situation would be those funds would say, you know what, whatever, five or 10 times 5 million is going to be 25 to 50 million and our fund's 300 million. It doesn't return the fund. Keep mm -hmm, going. Mm -hmm. They want you to keep mm -hmm. going. What was that discussion like with Saar? Did he want to get a quick win? Because that was when he no. was starting as a VC. No, or I was mean, he trying to push you to go long? One of the great things about Saar is that he's always felt like one of our teammates. Mm. He he has been a he's he led the Series A for Navigator as well. Oh wow! Yeah, and we are we feel very lucky to have gotten to work with him twice and with CRV twice. Mm. Uh, some some VCs. Uh, in my experience, think of their investments as a portfolio that they need to manage almost like playing cards. Uh, with SAR, I think he really tries to find teams that he he believes in at that level and wants to be a part of. And uh, I found in that season that he was uh, he was a uh, you know almost like a consigliere. He helped yeah. us think we we had a lot of good offers. We had good Series B offers and we had good acquisition offers. We were in a position to make kind of any choice we wanted, and um, but you didn't have a big win under your belt. You weren't as a founder independently wealthy. No, you had no, done no, well no. from IDEO. No, no, I mean, I, I, I like most of us was not trying to find a way to put a roof over my head or uh, eat at the end of the day. But, um, but the primary motivation was like, here's the situation we're in, mm -hmm. and uh, at the time, our 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 biggest goal was to figure out how to get all these people. At that time, it was like over a million people on the wait list. Yeah. How do we get all these people online as quickly as possible? Yeah. Uh, and they I mean, had the resources. Yeah. Dropbox uh, had a very, and still it does, have a very capable engineering team. Uh, it's a very 
robust engineering-led organization. And at the time, the vision was very aligned with what they wanted, where they wanted to go. So for us, it seemed like, hey, here's a great, here's a great uh, way to go and scale quickly. And they had that was the beginning of the funny money era for Silicon Valley, where there was just tons of money sloshing around. You had yeah. Yuri Milner coming in and having yeah. done really well, Chris Saka doing really well. So there was money around, so you could have kept going. There were uh, lots of ways to keep going. Yeah. yeah. But also, Dropbox was not public, but was no. surging. No, yeah. it was, yeah, it was growing quite fast. At the time, there was less than 300 people in the company. It was still pretty wow. small. Yeah. So you got to have some stock and some upside as well. Yep, you didn't just take all cash. Oh, no, it was, it was mostly stock. So that's another piece of the motivation because if you're getting stock, it's not like you're saying our appreciation is going to end here. We're just getting cash. No, not the at all. The appreciation could be just beginning. Yeah, we very much were uh, signing on to help grow Dropbox oh. as, a, as a brand in a broader sense. You know, there was a sense that maybe we could build the next MS office kind of So it all worked out. It worked out. I mean, Dropbox. I mean, it worked out financially for the company, but they obviously changed their position yes. and they shut everything down. They did. Is that heartbreaking for you it, as it, a founder? It was a hard season to be sure. Yeah. How uh, do you get through that? Like, because you're watching one of your babies die. I mean, not to be super morbid, but well, I think you do get super emotionally attached to the products you build. You can see you it from the care that you talked about with yeah. how you created it. So now it's getting shuttered. What's that moment like? Who makes that decision? Where were you when you found out they were going to shutter it? Uh, I was still at Dropbox, moment. and we were a part of that decision. Really. Uh, yeah, oh my I mean, Lord. We, we were in pretty, pretty deeply connected, and in some ways still are deeply connected with the leadership there. Uh, it's a really great group of people, and you know, it was a very hard decision for everyone involved. I mean, Dropbox prides itself on 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 caring for its users, and there were still a lot of people that were deeply in love with Mailbox when we had to turn it off. But the business needed to shift its strategy. You know, the the um, the the environment for file sync and share or the storage uh, service that was at, at Dropbox's core was becoming much more competitive and Dropbox needed to make its own path to IPO. And, um, you know, mm. it, there's a, a game of focus there that needed to happen. Yeah. But I think the thing that we took away that was um, what kept us going is, you know, we got into this game with orchestra. We got into the startup world because we really believed that software could transform how teams work together. We really believed that, these computers that were with us all the time could change what it meant to be a team. And we tried with Orchestra to uh, address that. It turned into Mailbox. But as we got into Dropbox, we saw that the bigger organizations got, the more difficult it was to work together, not less. And uh, it's it was like this itch that wouldn't go away. Mm. And so a lot of us on that original Mailbox team looked at each other and said, well, if Mailbox is not going to keep going, maybe maybe we just need to go start over and try again. And that's really what gave birth to Navigator. All right. You've earned your keep. When we get back, let's see Navigator on This Week in Startups. Scaling sales is hard. I deal with this over and over and over again with my companies and the companies I invest in. You already know Salesforce is the world's number one customer relationship management platform, aka CRM, you've heard it. Well, now with Salesforce Essentials, you get an easy out-of-the-box tool and support all at a startup price point. You get instant setup, boom, it's online, up and running, right then and there, and you don't need code. You can easily scale your sales team by customizing with clicks, not writing code, and you'll get full cycle customer support built right in. This is so you can automatically connect multiple support channels. You know those channels, chat, email, phone, all of these things. 
you'll be able to automate all that busy work and repetitive tasks, allowing your sales and support teams to be more efficient. And customers, of course, can help themselves with the self-service support site that Salesforce will set up for you. Everything you need is on one screen so you can track all these emails, track all these calls and the meetings right there in your inbox. So go and get access to the world's number one CRM at a cost fit for a startup. Go to salesforce.com twist and get, believe it or not, a 50% discount. That's right. Get a 50% discount with your annual contract and a free onboarding training session. They're going to train you and make sure you know how to use the product so you're not wasting any time or wasting any money, which we know is essential for startups. Salesforce wants you to be efficient and they don't want you to waste your startup dollars. They want to grow with you. Salesforce.com slash twist. Salesforce.com slash twist. I'm so proud of that, huh? That you will get a 50% discount with an annual contract. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, Gentry, you've done a great job. Everybody follow Gentry. He's part of the First Name Club on the Twitter, G-E-N-T-R-Y. How much you been offered for that? Uh, How many times? Never, actually. Really? Yeah, it's Not a pretty a lot of rare Gentry's name. Out. You know what the thing is? Gentry's are very frugal people. All the <laughs> Gentry's so. I've met. You got a name like Gentry. That's like an old man name. That's like yeah. you're from the 20s or something. Like I'm going to grow into my name. <laughs> basically, you're going to have to hit 110 because I think it's like Edith. You know, like... Yeah. That is an old man name. I love Gentry as a name. Thanks very much. Yeah, that's a good name. And Underwood, you're, that's a good name too. What is, what's the origin of Underwood? Uh, well, I grew up in Texas. I guess before that, it's probably going way back into England in some way. I actually think it meant south of the woods originally. Oh, does, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Underwood. Yeah. I was thinking like it has something to do with somebody who's like chopping down trees or something yeah. or in the wood business. But no, you, you live below the forest. You live below the forest. Really? Huh. Yeah. Fascinating. All right. Um, you earned your keep. Let's see Navigator. <laughs> Lots of great startup lessons. Okay. Well, I like yeah. I, I mean, I might caveat this by saying yeah. when we uh, when we when we backed away and looked at the Dropbox experience, uh, we we returned to, to Metcalf's law. Are you familiar with Metcalf's law? I am. Let's hear. Let's hear your. Uh, the uh, the basic version. idea of Metcalf's law is as the you add one every time you add an extra node to a network that the size of the network in terms of nodes is growing linearly, but the number of connections is growing quadratically. It's almost exponentially, or I guess maybe it is a form of exponentially. Um, you quickly find yourself in a place where if, if a team is a group of people that really want to work together, they want to be, uh, everyone kind of wants to be on the same page and we all want to know who's doing what. We all want to have a seat at the table. We all want to have a voice that's heard and appreciated. We want our expertise to be leveraged. When you're small, that's possible because the number of connections uh, in that network is small, but as the as the size grows past that famed two pizza box size, uh, the number of connections becomes unwieldy. And what's uh, the two pizza box size? Uh, oh, two pizzas for yeah. I think it, it's lunch. a Bezos term that you yeah. don't really want to team more than the size that could sit around and have two pizzas because yeah, they haven't sat with me in pizza because I'm going to take one of those pies <laughs> for myself. I'm from Brooklyn. I can get six slices, but yeah, yeah. I get the point. You get the point. Most people are not going to be got bones. Yeah. You're going to have two slices. <laughs> yeah. So you talk about eight people on a yeah, team. Yeah, like eight to ten people. Beyond that, yeah. like the number of connections is just unwieldy. And so what we think of as bureaucracy, what we think of as the calcification of culture when organizations get bigger. It's actually just a response to the fact that there are now too many people to keep in the loop. Yeah. There are too many conversations to have. And so if you think about all the conversations that need to theoretically happen in, for, in order for everybody to feel like their voice is a part of that collective and the amount that can happen, the bigger the organization, the more that gap grows. Yeah. And so we started thinking about that, that conversation gap. Mm -hmm. What are all the, what is a way to help, help like reduce that number? 
And we spent uh, several years exploring lots and lots of uh, prototypes, trying to find um, you know, that, that special magic place of, a, of a, a product that's technically quite powerful, that can add new capabilities, but is also adoptable. You know, it also uh, can integrate into what people are doing in a way that's actually not burdensome. Particularly in the world of SaaS, there's so much tool fatigue. No one really wants one more platform to try, one more tool to add to their system. Bit of SaaS burnout going on. There's a lot of SaaS burnout going on. There's actually a lot of app burnout going on as well. Yes, people are, I don't know what the stat was, but somebody, I think it was Ruloff was telling him a couple of years ago, he's like, do you know what the average number of new apps added to iPhones this month was? And I was like, what? He's like, less than one. Wow. And I was like, what? He's like, people have too many apps. And so if you look at the number they're deleting, net new apps was zero or negative because people were spending all this time removing their apps simplifying and simplifying their life because yeah Yeah. apps as a proxy for culture is like just like social media too much drowning in opportunity uh the experiment that eventually ended up working was something rather robot-like uh we 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 started playing with this concept of adding a team member Mm. like someone who would really talk to you wherever you wanted to be talked to Mm. Email, Slack, SMS, didn't really care, but it would it would join the team and start picking up all that busy work, all those conversations that needed to happen but weren't happening because the leaders or other people on the team were too busy. Could we facilitate those uh, via adding an extra team member? And that's really where the seed crystal for this idea of Navigator came. So yeah, is let's see. A- yeah, he'll pop it up. Pop it up on the screen. And remember, some people are listening, so a little sports casting. Sure. Is so great. I'm just going to go to Navigator.com. And, oh my God, I love a good uh, domain. Actually, I'm going to. Do that in a signed out screen so you can see a little bit when you oh, go. I just love a great domain. This little guy here is, is Wally Navigator. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's Navi Wally. Yeah, uh, and you have an Android there, and he's following your mouse. Yeah, I love if, that. If I we've got all the typical... what do they call that little big things? You ever see that website, the Tumblr, little big things? Uh, no, I haven't. But that's oh my nice... god, I, yeah, it's I think it's called little big things. It's a bunch of these like UX geeks, and they just find little things like what you're doing there, and they. <laughs> just obsessed over yeah. there make little animated gifts little big things or big little things something like that so if i uh we've got the <laughs> typical sassy page here that gives yeah. all the basic details but when you jump in here we just start right away with the underlying uh vision of what navigator could be oh my god that's beautiful so, look you just got rid of everything on the screen it says hello i'm navigator what should i call you you say gentry <laughs> one of my creators is named gentry nice to meet I you should have seen that <laughs> one coming what are you <laughs> This is the onboarding experience. And if I yeah. jump from there, I can just take you into kind of how it works on a day-to-day basis. So if I go to Navigator as a regular user, I can see all the different meetings that are on my on my docket here. Hmm. What, what Navigator does is it picks up right now, it's really focused on meetings right now. It picks up all the busy work associated with running a great meeting. Yeah. Turns out meetings don't have to be terrible, painful experiences. They can actually be profoundly powerful experiences. But what makes a great meeting great is a lot of work ahead of time, a lot of preparation. You want to talk to everybody in the meeting and, and give them an opportunity to uh, share or add to an agenda. Uh, you want to make sure that all pre-reads or anything that needs to be done beforehand is distributed. And you want people to come in with that feeling that uh, they've they've got a place at that table that's valued. Mm. So we so the value of a meeting is correlated with the work that's done in advance. It very much is correlated. And, you know, it's funny. As opposed to me just dropping in and saying, we're having a meeting right now. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been in many of your meetings, but it's pretty chaotic like that. I'm just like five o'clock meeting yeah. on this. Just because I want to have like a but that that's a different type of meeting. There, do you find there are meetings in categories? Like there's the ad hoc the, meeting, like let's just rap about this. There are certainly uh many categories. And I but I think if I could give you a little leeway, it's probably the case that you're very busy and that yeah. while 
in a perfect world, you would love to talk to everybody before the meeting and, yeah. and collect their information and put it together in an agenda. You got a lot going on, and it's yeah. very difficult to actually carve out the time to do that. Yeah. All it is so common for leaders in today's organizations to know that there's more that they could be doing around the kind of preparation and busy work of collaboration. Uh, but they just don't have time. And uh, that's really where Navigator is designed to be most helpful. It's like a an AI co-pilot for busy leaders. So here it is. You have your weekly kickoff. You yeah, got so your brand design. Uh, you can see, um, basically, wants to know what I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> you might ask me how I'm doing as well. Yeah, so you're telling uh, the Navigator that you're doing a demo for me. Maybe uh, I want to add something to this week's meeting. Let's say... Uh, oh, look, and it prompts you. What is the purpose of this topic? Make yeah. a decision, discuss a problem, brainstorm ideas, review status, gather feedback, or share information. Let's say we want to make a decision. Yeah, let's do that. Let's make a decision. What to charge for a navigator? What should we charge for a navigator? Right? Like, that's a decision you have to make. Like, one of the first decisions is one of my questions anyway. So, kill two birds with one stone here. And I'll stop there, but you get the basic idea. And we can yeah. actually canvas everyone ahead of time to provide input on that before. Oh, no, no. Let's not cancel here. This okay. is good. Okay. And what context might help everyone to reach an informed decision? I think this is like the most interesting part here. Okay, cool. Because it's saying uh, so, what would be the context of making a pricing decision? Do we want to capture the high end of the market? Yeah, what what are our goals? Yeah, do we want to capture the high end of the market like superhuman or do we want to be a mass market product like Canva? Yep. And maybe we want to link to a, a paper document or a Google Doc where sure. we've done some comps based on Yeah. So you know, here's Here's a list of comps for each and we can put some links in there to our docs. Um, is there a framework for this that like Harvard or that you did at IDEO there's, or that is yeah. a standard? Because I know. Yes, there's actually several. Bezos so, had one where he said, write the press release. Yes. And let's read the press release for the product before we build the product. Yes. That one always stuck out to me. I have Emmy Award winning producer Jackie doing that now. I have her write the email yes. to attendees of what's on the agenda for the next conference. And then we fill in the speakers based on the agenda that we think founders reading would inspire them. You're catching on the 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 secret sauce here. Yeah. So to go all the way back to your first example of the yeah. checklist manifesto, what 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 that's an example of is a good process can be transformative in terms of how it can change behavior. And if that's true at the individual level with something like flying a plane, it's extremely true at the team level. Teams that employ great processes are profoundly more effective as teams than yes. those that don't. Yes. And yet, if you back away and think about it, we have oodles and oodles of tools and platforms to help us employ any process we want. But if we want to employ a good process, it's kind of upon us as leaders to go read these books yeah. or do this research and teach our brains how to how to codify these processes. And then we we use Google Docs or Excel or, or Asana or any, any other system yeah. to go and uh, express that process. And that's a that's a really inefficient way of, of taking that those best practices. And, and I think at the core of what we're trying to do in Navigator and where the real potential here is, is to take uh, world-class best practices for all of these things, making decisions, gathering feedback, solving problems, putting together meeting agendas. There, there are so many pieces in the, in the collaboration space where great process makes all the difference. And we can bring those into organizations whether or not they have people on their teams mm. that are both well-trained in that and have the time to do it.
Yeah. It's interesting. It's almost like the evolution of SaaS will eventually be the layer of best practice on top of it. It's a whole new category, like mm. best practice SaaS. Yeah. Because SaaS right. is a commodity when you think about it. If you, if I asked you to recreate Slack or Mailbox or whatever it is, a team could recreate it in months, weeks, whatever, some right. period of time right. for some amount of money that would be negligible. It's really about that continuing insight into the customer base. Mm -hmm. And that evolution yes. that matters and adding these best practices are the key. What 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 inspires you about meetings well, as I a human factors expert having worked at IDEA? What's interesting about meetings is they are they are still, in spite of all our of our technologies, the highest bandwidth form of communication that we have. They're yeah, these, highest fidelity. They're profoundly high fidelity yeah. and they're profoundly expensive. You take a bunch of humans who you're paying a lot of money to work oh together. God, yeah. Eight times bring, one hour. Bring them all together into a single room that you're also probably paying a lot of money for if you're out here. And uh, you've got this dedicated chunk of time where you are borrowing the the highest bandwidth pipes in the world, which is our, you know, the senses that we mm. come out of our mothers with. Yeah. And uh, and yet that time is so often squandered. And yeah. uh, so people have these feelings that meetings are terrible. A lot of meetings are terrible, but yeah. they don't need to be terrible. They can actually be the fulcrum moments inside of an organization. And so we see them from a collaboration perspective as a great place to start this broader set of services that we hope Navigator is able to offer over time. They're also the container for all other kinds of processes that need to occur. You know, if you show up in a meeting and you make a decision, you can do that in the room, but it's a much more effective process if you've done a lot of work ahead of time to gather all the requirements, gather all the options, organize them into a clear picture that help people make an informed decision. You know, put the emphasis on the data instead of putting the emphasis on whoever speaks the most loudly. Yeah, uh, they're they're Be careful with that one because that's kind of what got me here. <laughs> it's my, it, but it, it has, is something I think about because meetings favor extroverts. Yes, they meetings do. favor obnoxious people or dominant people. Yes, they do. And it is one of the failings that Google realized when they went through their meeting process was that some of the most talented people were introverts and. Sometimes these extroverts who are funny, because mm -hmm. I was always funny, I think being funny and extroverted, you dominate meetings. Mm -hmm. And if you're not clever, witty, and you're introverted, like where where's the place for you in a meeting? Right. What do you think about that topic of introverts, extroverts? And there's something that Google did where they said, everybody has to speak twice at the meeting, or they have some best mm. practice like that, where they say, like at two points during the meeting, they go around the table, does any... What's everybody's input? Mm -hmm. Or you haven't spoken, Gentry. You haven't spoken, Jackie. What's your position on this? And they kind of force them to speak, which yeah. is what I do in my meetings is I start with what I think the most pressing problems are and I have that person give an update mm -hmm. and then I keep it mm -hmm. on people's toes. They don't know who's going to be going first. So I just say, everybody, be prepared to inform your teammates as to what the most pressing issues you're dealing with are. Mm. And then I just flip and just say, Jackie, you start. Or then I start at the bottom of the stack, the youngest person in the meeting the, the you know whatever and go up mm -hmm. what do you what do you think about these different processes I mean I think what what you're hitting on is that there are for, well there's two pieces there one is that effective processes transform how we work together and yeah. it's a bit like we were talking about before if you can take the the processes that have already been proven to work well in studies and make them quite accessible to mm. you know, organizations that haven't done all that research you're gonna you're gonna be able to superpower a team uh, simply by bringing a new process into the organization. Yeah. The other thing that's really interesting, though, that you're, you, I think you're hinting at is there, there are certain uh, ways of interacting that are best suited for us sitting together, looking at one another in a room. And there are 
There's a lot of stuff that's actually better done asynchronously, better done digitally ahead of time. It, one example I like to give a lot is when you're doing a, a design feedback session, even a very uh, seasoned and experienced designer is going to have a hard time hearing feedback in real time on mm -hmm. something they've been working on. The amygdala, you know, this oldest part of our brain, it comes online and it sees negative feedback as almost like a personal attack. Yeah. And people who, who, who know this is happening and have been, have been trained to, you know, treat feedback as a way of making designs better still can very easily be, become defensive in that moment. Yeah. But if you take that same feedback and you provide it ahead of time and then use the meeting to discuss it as opposed to it appearing uh, at the beginning. They're not attacked. They're it's not, not attacked. A, it's not a sneak attack. It's not a sneak attack. Right. It transforms that feedback. Yeah. So there's- there's you, As we would call it politically incorrectly back in the day, it was like they would refer to meetings like that as Pearl Harbor <laughs> because you were just yeah. showing up at a meeting and then somebody would just come out of nowhere yeah. and just- bombard yeah. you and sneak attack you. And even if you've asked for it, it's like there's something about hearing it in, in, the, in the moment where a different part of our brain kicks on and it's quite difficult. You see it in board meetings too, don't you? Yeah. Especially with the young VCs. Sarah and I were on a board and uh, it's like a real skill to learn to get into a board meeting and have people leave the board meeting feel feeling more inspired mm -hmm. than when we started. Mm -hmm. And that is the rubric which I go into board mm -hmm. meetings is I want to have the serious discussion about the most important issues but I, which is a negative process inherently. Yes. Because we're saying, what's the biggest acute Challenges. issue that could kill yeah. this company? Yeah. And then challenge myself to make it so that when we leave, people feel yeah. better than at the beginning of the meeting. Yeah, I, I think you're hitting on something so important. I mean, we, we really underestimate the, the, the role that energy plays in these kinds of moments. Yeah. But to walk away from a situation and feel empowered and challenged as opposed to defeated and disheartened uh, can make all the difference for an entrepreneur. Yeah. And giving the feedback ahead of time is the best practice. So if you had new designs for the 2.0 of navigator.com, yep. you would circulate them ahead of time and say, uh, what? You say, hey, I'd love to get your feedback. Here's the kind of feedback I'm looking for. Uh, I want it at this level. Like maybe it's just a rough mock and I want people to suggest better ways of improving it or maybe I'm looking for that like very fine-tuned feedback because I'm ready for it. You need to sort of communicate the level of expectation of what you want to see. Yeah. Give people a chance to sit with it. Give people a chance to respond to it in a thoughtful way. Give the person who created it a chance to see that before they go into the room. And then you can use that meeting time to really tease out the nuances or identify the challenges that, you know, often design is about weighing these choices and realizing that too much of A means not enough of B. Mm. And you can have those conversations in much more thoughtful ways instead of just bracing yourself for the yeah. you know the critique you're about to hear. We call it socializing in the mm. board speak. So what I always train my founders is like, you're going into that board meeting. Let's say it's the mailbox series B discussion with SAR and whoever. Yeah. I just tell folks like, your job as the founder is to have the mobile phone numbers of your board members, text them five days out after you've sent the deck or wh when the deck's about to come and just say, hey, can I call you right now for five minutes? Mm -hmm. uh, nothing urgent. Just want to ask you, just want to preview the deck or whatever. And don't even set up the meeting. Just have that casual where you're on such a good relationship with SAR that if you text him, he calls you right back, yeah, right? And I have totally. that with the founders I'm on the board of. And just say like, hey, listen, we're going to, uh, we're going to need to expand the employee stock option pool. It's 2% dilution for everybody. We're all going to hit with that. Just wanted to see if you had any thoughts on that. It's in the deck I sent you. Uh, yeah. And uh, we're going to kill this project because it's not working and nobody's motivated to do it. And 
I know we spent the last year talking about it and I was super enthused about it, but I was wrong. Hmm. Having that discussion before you go in. Changes everything. It changes it? everything because you have the context of, oh, wow, this person's taken the time to check in with me before. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. not a surprise. So you, you, It's actually the reverse of what we're talking about. Like not just the criticism, but you're pre-circulating the presentation yeah. to prepare the person who has to give feedback. To like, be ready. To be ready yeah. and how to give it. Yeah. And then when I go into those board meetings now, it's like, yeah, no, we talked about that offline. And then the person's like super proud, like, oh, yeah, we had an offline discussion about that. Yeah, we're, you know, I'm ahead of the curve on this one. (laughs) We're good. Yeah, no, totally agree with your reasoning. Let's go on to the next issue. Yeah. Um, I love the pre, I love the pre, the socialize Mm -hmm. beforehand. Mm -hmm. Turns out to be a a big part of a meeting that works. What do you think about seating in a meeting? I know it sounds silly, but who sits where Mm. has come up in Sheryl Sandberg's book. It came up in Pixar's book. Creativity. Creativity. We had Ed, yeah, yeah, yeah. Creativity. we had Ed Catmull on the podcast, did a two-part episode. It was great. You remind me of him, actually, because you're mm. considered and you're thinking about processes, which probably came from IDEO. And Creativity Inc. had a big influence on us as well. I did mean, it really? Yeah. Explain. I think Unpack. Pixar has been such a powerful example of being thoughtful about the internal processes for, um, you know, the baby and the beast, for example. Like, how, how do you nurture creativity and create an environment where ideas can be born and grow and even thrive while while still allowing the organization to be the efficiency and execution machine it needs to be in order mm. to take those out and into the world. Yeah. That's a that's a tension that's quite difficult to hold both of those at once. And Pixar, along with Apple, are maybe two of the best examples in the world of companies that have been able to do it. Give me an example, like with Pixar, of like what the baby and beast would be or at Apple. Let's just make an imaginary scenario of what they're trying to do in terms of moving the ball forward but while preserving idea culture and any idea mm. is worthy of discussion culture, which yeah. I think might be the way to say it, right? Like you don't want to squash ideas, but you do need to be ruthless about in a startup or any endeavor when you have competitors or deadlines, you need to GSD. Yeah. You got to get stuff done. Yeah. yeah uh, in Pixar, they talk a lot about a brain trust. It's a small group of people that are used to help move an early concept of a mm-hmm. film forward uh, in uh, Steve's funeral, Johnny gave this this uh, eulogy of uh, speaking about how uh, Steve Steve would often sit with Johnny and have uh, these moments where they would talk about ideas and and sometimes they were terrible, <laughs> Johnny said, and sometimes they would take the air out of the room. They were so powerful, but in all cases, at that time, there were these tiny little, you know, fragile things that were uh, in that nascent stage. They needed to be very carefully cared for. You know, when an idea first emerges, it's profoundly fragile. And there's a, a, a very uh, important process to be considered if you want them to grow. You need to, be, you need to be quite considerate about the way that you add new energy to that idea yeah. and the way you allow it to grow. I think both with Pixar and Apple, uh, Apple with the ID team most notably in Pixar with that brain trust, uh, there's a small group of people that have been very carefully selected over a very long period of time that act as one collective mind and very carefully nurture ideas when they're small mm. to bring them to a state of form where they can begin to speak on their own. And they don't really show them to anybody else mm. until they're in that place. Yeah, And that's that's not a pride thing. That's not a secrecy thing for secrecy's sake. That's an understanding that in that early stage, they are so fragile. Yeah. They are so um, nascent yeah. and uh, that they have to be nurtured and cared for in this, in this very this very gentle way, much like a baby would. Yeah, it reminds me when you were speaking, I was just visualizing like a soap bubble. 
Mm. You know, like when you blow that soap yeah, bubble, and it's that's like a great metaphor. It's just so, like, it, delicate. So delicate, and once you figure out, and this is like what the brain trust figured out, is exactly the amount of breath you need to yeah. put through that soap bubble that's to get right. it to disconnect from the wand. That's that's a but not pop, metaphor. right? And if you blow so hard, all you get is a splatter of soap, <laughs> and if you blow too slow, you it nothing. just collapses. You get nothing. Yeah. It's just that right cadence of not killing the bubble. And uh, my favorite Pixar film, and I'm interested in yours, is Ratatouille. Ah, that's a beautiful film. And when you think about that film, it is so hard to imagine that first bubble. Mm. I want to do a film <laughs> in France about a rat, about a rat <laughs> who, who, loves to cook. <laughs> who loves to cook, but nobody wants the rat to cook their dinner. Yeah. And Anton Ego is the worst critic, kind of like the press who criticized Pixar and Apple. Mm. And the rat has to win over the harshest critic in the world. Mm. And the way he's going to win over that harsh critic is to tap into his childhood and make the dish that his mom made him, Ratatouille, which is the dish of the peasants in France. Mm. And... The rat's name is Ratatouille. <laughs> it's beautiful. Boom. <laughs> Can you imagine saying that to like a group of a focus group? Yeah. They'd be like, what? You want a rat to cook dinner? You want me to pay to see a rat cook my dinner? Yeah, the first thing you'd hear is, no one's going to go to see a movie about rats. Next. Yeah, next idea. Next. next. Yeah. Yeah. Or how about this one? We're going to make a Pixar movie. It's about an old widower. Mm. And he's old and senile. But he wants to travel. But he wants to travel, and he wants to put his house on a bunch of balloons <laughs> and fly it to South America and land it there to find an adventure, sort of like an Indiana Jones person, and as a tribute to his dead wife. And the, oh, by the way, we're having a twenty-minute no dialogue uh, collage. Uh, what do they call that when you make a supercut? Like a, a montage. montage. And yeah. here's the winning thing: we're starting it with a twenty-minute montage about the death of his wife <laughs> when she has a heart attack on a hill during a picnic. You're going to watch a love story end in tragic death. And Go. then after the funeral, that's 20 minutes in, he's at the funeral, he's 80 years old, and he decides to spend the last two years of his life going in tribute to her. Yeah, It's like, it's about an old man who's a widower and we watch his wife die. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go. Hence the need for a brain trust. You yeah. do need to have a brain trust there to say like, yeah, let's go with it for a minute. Yeah. Let's go with it for Def a minute. IDEO has this term, defer judgment. And anytime judgment. an idea oh, is it. young, you know, you there's all kinds of reasons why it, sh it shouldn't or couldn't work. In fact, if there weren't those reasons, it would probably already exist. And so mm. part of that, you know, part of that nascent process is just taking that part of your brain that says no and just for a little while, just setting it on the side. Yeah creating a space where it is possible. So when you went to SAR with this idea, did you have a mock-up? Did you already build a prototype? Or you just said, here's the idea? Do you want For to Navigator? Yeah. For yeah, Navigator. we just said, here's the idea. Uh, I think SAR and, and CRV, they're, they're very uh, team-driven in yeah. their early stage uh, focus. And uh, I think in our case, we, having done this before, we were in a place, again, where we could have raised from a couple different folks. And we just really liked working with CRV. I, yeah. I, Continuity is important. Yeah, I mean, when you find someone you trust and yeah. someone who who you you know you've seen them on the hard days and they've they've shown their metal and 
Um, one less thing to worry about. Even more than that, I mean, they make you stronger. Yeah. yeah. We have that candidness, which is the thing that for Creativity Inc. Yes. seem to be, it's something I strive for internally is with my teams is just, let's just be radically candid. And we're going to have um, uh, Kim, uh, who wrote Radical Candor uh, on the podcast, Kim Scott, yeah, um, soon. But Creativity Inc. had that candor. Like, mm. if you use the word can, be candid with me as opposed to be honest with me. Mm-hmm. When you say be honest, you're like, oh, stop lying. Right. When you say be candid, it's like, I know you're telling me the truth, but can you be super truthful? Just shoot me straight. Yeah, even yeah. a little more truthful. Is, yeah. I'm, I can handle it. It's yeah. like giving permission to yeah. give that, you know, super candid totally. feedback. And boy, does it work. Very powerful if you trust the people who give it to you. Yeah. And so you didn't even have to run a process. Mm. And you just see, this is the magic of Silicon Valley, which people don't understand or frequently criticize um, because there was just some article like, oh, a bunch of people got rich off of Slack who were a certain demographic or whatever. And that is more a function of just if we're all here for 20 or 30 years, when the next thing happens, it's very easy to just be like, yeah, I'll put 50K and 100K. I know Mm. you. If I lose it, who cares? Mm. It's not like some elite club. It's more the continuity of having worked together so long. Mm. And if you look at the NBA, the teams that stick together longer seem to do better. Yeah, You know, the Warriors being the prime example. Now, if they can keep that team together, man, the sky's the limit mm-hmm. um, for- I don't remember who it was, but I've, I've been very drawn to this idea that that Silicon Valley could be thought of as one large company and every startup is almost like a different division in it. And For sure. Sometimes the divisions, their projects don't work and they go on to a different division. Uh, and other times they work quite well and the division grows. Huh. Uh, but there's this sense in which the, you know, the, the beauty of uh, this place and this way of working is the way that everybody yeah. can, can work together yeah. and, and uh, strengthen one another in that way. It is a tremendous strength. And the virus has spread now. Mm-hmm. I, you know, having just got back from Sydney, uh, having gone t- two years in a row, Watching that ecosystem mm. af- before and after Canva really broke out, they just had a $3.5 mm. billion dollar, wow. uh, market cap. And I had Melanie, the CEO, who's like 30 years old, and she's like a force who doesn't want to do any press because she just wants to put her head down and make Canva.com a little bit better every wow. day. Kind of reminds me of you, like really considered product person. But I finally got her to be on, or Jackie finally got her to be on the podcast. But you can see all the lessons that we've learned here. Mm-hmm. They've got all of them over there. Mm. Medium, podcasts social media, the the ideas spread and yeah. remote work has become such a powerful, powerful moment. Mm. What do you think the best practice is for remote meetings? Because Zoom, I don't understand why Zoom broke out. I used to use GoToMeeting. It seemed just fine for mm. me and my developers used uh, Google Hangouts. And then Zoom just went bonkers. Yeah. Why is Zoom successful? That's a great question. I mean, I think a big part of it is a ruthless, ruthless uh focus there on taking out as many friction points as possible mm. on the on the video conferencing experience and trying to make that as reliable as possible. Mm. I think all of us, when we think about video conferencing, we think of it as like, oh God, this thing that's not going to work. Yeah. And that's a 10 good- 10 minutes of pain. Futzing with the machine and trying to get it to connect and all the rest. And I think the underlying vision with Zoom is to create an experience that is as easeful and uh, reliable as possible just to get that piece out of the way so you can yeah. focus more on I'm a meeting Nazi I guess mm. that's not, I can't say that anymore that's politically incorrect you can't say Pearl Harbor for a meeting and I can't say meeting Nazi but I'm a meeting Nazi <laughs> I will admonish people don't Jackie's like please don't say Nazi what if I say punch a Nazi like I want to punch a Nazi can I punch a Nazi anymore is that politically incorrect now um, 
Jack is like, fine, you can punch a Nazi. <laughs> uh, that's how crazy the world has gotten. Saying punch a Nazi is, people are like, can you say that? It's like, we fought them in World War II. <laughs> people died. Like, yes, you, it's okay to want to kill a Nazi. That is a high order of all the okays. It's okay to kill and punch a Nazi. Uh, maybe in reverse order. Um, but I insist that everybody have Ethernet to mm. their computer, mm. not Wi-Fi. I make them turn the Wi-Fi off on their computer to yep. ensure that they're on Ethernet. Yep. Then I make them buy from the wire cutter, the Microsoft MPOW headset or the Plantronics DSP 400 and plug it into their goddamn USB port wow. and have the stick microphone like you're landing a plane. If you get on a meeting with me with AirPods or like that dangling Apple nonsense, <laughs> you're off the meeting. Get off the meeting. You'll yep. come back next time with a proper headset and Ethernet. This has transformed meetings. Just wow. a simple, you know. Hardware requirement. Hardware requirement of those two things. 90% of the problem in these remote meetings is the fidelity. Hmm. And some idiot always doesn't know how to use the mute key. <laughs> so then I assign somebody to be the muter wow. to make sure everybody's muted. And then, hey, when we're in that meeting, make sure you explain to people to mute themselves when they're not talking. Mm -hmm. That's on you as a participant. And then- if you hear noise, like you, you ever do on the board meeting and there's like that one board guy mm. who's calling from the airport because mm -hmm. they're so damn important that they, you know, they're going to be at Aspen and they have to call from the, while they're chugging it through the airport. Yeah. You can't be in a goddamn room like a normal human being. That guy, I want my person to mute that person. Yeah. I don't want that person ruining the meeting with their background noise at the airport. Mm-hmm. Because it's on you as that it's dipshit. It's like you need a moderator mode or something. You do. And it's up to that dipshit to know that they're in an airport and hit the mute And of course, that's the most narcissistic, insane investor who's like, yeah, no, I, hold on. Hold hold. Yeah. Uh, one extra shot of espresso. Yeah. No, short. That's too long. Okay. Yeah. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Projections? Yeah. Oh, when are we out of money? It's freaking crazy. Just yeah. basic etiquette. What's your favorite device at a meeting? I'm curious. Uh, we've been playing with the owl lately. Have you seen that? We have the owl upstairs. Yeah. We are insanely in love with the owl. And there is an owl right here. Yeah. They're, they're, this is the they're greatest device neat. ever. Fully endorsed by J.Cal. $1,000. Yeah. Explain why you're in love with the owl. And it's Owl Labs is the company that makes it. I think it's- I believe. Is it owllabs.com? I believe so. You know, I think it's got a lot of promise. Uh, it's oh. the way that it can locate on your voice and whoever's speaking in a room if you've got one in yes. the middle of a table. Uh, it's interesting, though, if you have some people that are come calling in remotely and are on a screen like the one we have here. Yeah. And you have these, for those people, it creates this kind of odd situation where you're looking at the screen instead of at the owl. Uh, and so you have to do this thing. Of, yeah, there's a little bit of some weird... training. Yes. Because what people, with the owl, it plugs in to any meaning software. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have its own software. It's, it's just an external yeah. camera microphone. Yep. But it's got microphones 360 degrees around. That's so right. if you have eight people around our meeting, we have two people in Toronto typically, The on the top is a robotic camera that will uh, pick up who's talking and zoom in on them. Mm -hmm. And then you see a like a multi-feed a, a window picture in a picture type thing. Yep, we have a multi, yep. we have a wraparound view, which mm -hmm. would be like a panoramic yeah, almost. Yeah, like a 360 spread out as a yes. long panoramic. So you see everybody in the meeting and mm -hmm. then it zooms in on whoever's yep. talking. Yep. It is so magical. That's yeah, like having a camera person in the room doing all it's that It's literally like having a camera yeah. operator. Yeah. And the issue you're talking about is when you have a projector or a screen, yes. you're looking at yourself 
or you're looking at the person you're talking to, but the audio is getting picked up through the owl. Yeah. And so they experience you as looking away from them, even though. uh, That's just a matter of people just need to look at the owl when they're talking. Yeah, or we need to find a way to get those screens and those microphones. I mean, imagine an owl that had a 360 degree display going as well and could bring the face of the Oh my God, that's such a good idea. If you have a curved monitor, or just even if you had four monitors, Uh one on each side, Little, well, they call that in the business a courtesy monitor. There's one right over your left shoulder. So the problem with giving you a courtesy monitor as somebody who's not regularly, I assume, on TV every day or no. two or three times yeah. a week is if you had a courtesy monitor here, you I'd would be, be looking at it. it. Yeah. And when you look at the first 100 episodes of This Week in Startups, you'll see me looking down all the time. I'm looking at the courtesy monitor to see how I look. Got it. But now I don't. you don't see me looking at that. I'll look at that as a reference once in a while or you'll see me speak into it. And that's why the monitor is right above it. So see how we stack it? There's a monitor. and uh, Yeah, so the, if you stack it like that, when I'm looking at the camera, when I'm looking at the monitor, I'm actually looking at the camera. Um, what do you charge for this? For your product? Uh, for Navigator. Navigator, yeah. Navigator is still free to use. Free. Yeah, we're, we're still in that stage where we're trying to learn as much as we can from the teams that are using it. So we, we plan to offer paid plans later this year. Mm. Uh, but right now it's entirely free. So we invite anyone Get who wants there. to go give it a shot. You're hiring? Shot. We are hiring. Navigator.com slash careers uh, slash jobs. Jobs.navigator.com. Uh, uh, yeah, aspen.team is the best place to get to the oh, jobs. Yeah. What's, what's the story? What's Aspen Team? Are you doing the, like an all turtles type thing? Uh, we started under the name Aspen. You know, an Aspen tree is a, a really interesting organism. Uh, when you go look at a grove of aspens in the forest, that entire grove is actually one organism. Yes. It looks like a bunch of trees on the surface, but when you go underneath, yeah. all that, all the roots are actually all interconnected. And that felt to us like a good metaphor for what we were trying to facilitate. You know about these mushrooms now too? That oh, yeah. The mycelium networks. The mycelium networks. Yeah. It's pretty I, amazing. I had heard about this because I live in San Francisco uh-huh. where mushrooms are now legal. Yes. In Oakland, they're now legal. Did you hear about this? They're de- I, I heard about that. Yeah. Anything that comes out from a plant, I guess, is going to be legal in Oakland. In Oakland. Okay. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, let's see how we're, it's, I don't know if it's going to be, it's decriminalized. I guess mm. if you have a bag of, mu- listen, talk to your attorney, but if you have a bag of mushrooms on you in Oakland, mm-hmm. I don't think you're going to be arrested now. I don't think you ever would have been arrested. Probably not. I think you probably would have to give the cop a pinch, but that's just, you know, that's, yeah. that's, that's a tax more than <laughs> an illegal thing. But the mycelium networks are crazy. They're incredible. You have miles and miles yeah. of mushrooms speaking to each other through a network of underground Yeah, and speaking connectivity. to other organisms as well. In this fact, is so trippy. They can actually balance uh, food and nutrition and even antibodies across many different species of trees. They're yeah. a, they're a super species in that sense. It's absolutely incredible. And we're just figuring this out now. Yeah, we now. know so little. Isn't it amazing that we're sitting here in 2019 and you would assume that we understand the biology of Earth mm-hmm. completely. Mm-hmm. Like we've had enough time. Yeah. We have enough scientists. We've got enough labs, billions of people here. We should know how mushrooms work. W- one would think. One would think. So if we don't know, if we're just figuring out mushrooms are talking to each other and other organisms, yeah. what are dolphins doing? What, <laughs> Great what, question. What are whales? I mean, yeah. who knows what polar bears are doing up there? there? There is so much majesty in this planet that we have just scratched the surface of beginning to understand, even as we destroy it more quickly than we understand it. Bonkers. Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? I'm I'm, it depends on the day. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I have kids, you know, and I want my kids to live in a better world than the one that I live in. When I look outside, I see a, a species that is uh, acting almost like an aphid. It's, uh, 
it's it's consuming faster than it's caring for the world around us. And I, we have to change that. We yeah. have to find a way to fix it. This is the thing I like about these millennials and these Gen Zs. Speaking of which, we're going to have our interns ask a question. If uh-huh. you're up for it. I'm for up the, for it. You're up for it? Okay. Yeah. So everybody go to patreon.com slash TWI startups. That's our new Patreon. We get to hang out with me, ask me questions. You get first shot at Office Hours, our new live event. Uh, and we're going to do a couple of questions every episode for the Patreon audience. It's like, I think it's five bucks or two bucks a month or something. We don't need the money. We put the money back into the show, but we do it because we just want to skim the cream of the one top 1% of the audience in terms of not money because it's de minimis. It's like less than the co- price of a coffee, but it's more for us to just connect with you and understand who the super fans are to get your feedback. Yeah. I, I got freaked out on my, I was at Hamilton Island, which is like the most beautiful place, mm. beach in the world. I mm. took the team on like our retreat after um, the launch festival, sydney.com. We went to Hamilton Island, which is this amazing, the Sundays it's called. And what we went to Whitehaven Beach. It was like one of the most amazing experiences. And as it is, you know, you, you go to one of these like Airbnbs or like I rented like a little mini apartment for my family and they had those goddamn Nespresso cups. Mm. I am on fire about this. Mm. I drink two, three cups of coffee a day. I like two or three shots of espresso in each one. Mm. I go buy some, I have to buy new ones. I buy the espresso means I buy a 10 pack, Gentry. It's a box. Yeah. In the box are 10 foil wrapped plastic, plastic, aluminum cups. Pods, yeah. So the pods, they don't even have the dignity to just put the pods in a paper. Mm box or foil. They have to individually wrap each one. And I'm sitting here unwrapping each one wow. using three for one goddamn flat white. Yeah. At the end of the day, I have 10 of these things. And I'm just thinking, what value does this have? Yeah. And so I am on fire about this. And I am starting a new, this is because I, I did this with Adrian Grenier with Straws. The mm-hmm. two of us were emailing, start, you know, Adrian Grenier from yeah. uh, Entourage. Entourage. We became friends yeah, through yeah. a friend. And he cares about the straw thing. I care about the straw thing. So we retweet each other. We got a little like mini bromance going where we're just both into the environment. So I just started emailing people at Starbucks and CCing him. And we start haranguing the <laughs> Starbucks executives to kind of get them off straws. And just to put that little bit of pressure, it kind yeah. of works yeah, yeah. because they don't want some loud mouth from the tech industry with 300,000 followers and Adrian Grenier with whatever millions of followers mm. he have just bringing this up. Yep. And um, now I want to do podcasters this was uh austin smith a uh, friend of mine's idea podcasters against pods mm. <laughs> so i'm gonna just run to it, i'm gonna it? do the, i'm gonna do the ad right now this is my first okay. run through. here we go hey everybody it's jason calacanis from this week in startups and we're starting a new movement it's called podcasters against pods if you are using nespresso pods or any nestle pods or any of these pods billions of which are winding up in landfills i want you to stop I want you to buy the reusable one, which they're trying to stop people from using. Or I want you to just take a moment and think, if you're using three or four or five pods a day, it's 1,500 a year over 10 years, it's 15,000. Over a lifetime, 100,000 pods for your coffee are in a landfill. And if you are in a family of five, that's 500,000. And if you have 50 friends, it's a lot, it's millions. I'm not going to do the math here. Podcasters against pods. If you have a podcast, I just want you to just tell everybody that it's irresponsible to buy pods and to just buy one of the simple reusable French presses or a pour over. It makes better coffee. It's better for the environment. And pods must stop. 
Stop the Pod, Podcasters Against Pods, yada, yada, yada. Somebody make a website for me. I got all these people in the audience. Make a goddamn website. Get a good domain name, and I'll uh, I'll buy you dinner at your restaurant of choice if you build a kick-ass website for me. Pods against podcast. pods. Po- podcasters, podcasters against pods. Against pods. Somebody make the website. If you make a great website, uh, I will take you to dinner in San Francisco. All right. Intern questions when we get back. All right. So to wrap up, everybody go check out navigator.com. Give Gentry some feedback. He's Gentry on the Twitter. And uh, to recap, wow, you said it all. Ideas are like soap bubbles, socialize before those meetings. Great video. Ride the ride the tide of whatever's coming in. The wait list worked. So many great lessons here. Two pizza rule, Metcalf's law, SAS burnout. Meetings should be planned. A lot of uh, a lot of lessons, hard fought. Hmm. Appreciate you sharing them, Gentry. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, pleasure. Okay, uh, intern questions. Pretty good. Pretty good. I give you all uh, seven point five. I didn't actually consider that at all. I just want to keep you hungry. Okay. I don't give eights. Those are good questions. Well, you're going to ask more questions, questions in the future. All right. Uh, and if you're a developer, designer, enterprise sales, I don't know what you need, but you need to go check out navigator.com and consider working for Gentry because, as you can tell, he's smart, and it's probably going to be another rocket ship. I, I'm, you're going for the, you're going for it this time. I take it. Yeah, I think the, the the lessons of last time was uh, well, one of them was that it's it's really hard to hand something off and then lose yeah. lose the ability to to carry it into the future. I think I think the potential with navigator is actually quite large. If you think about all the all the processes that could be brought into an organization and all the places mm. that a, a virtual facilitator could make work better, it's it's kind of unbelievable. Yeah. So it's we more are, equitable too. It, it it is it creates a better environment. We're yeah. we're seeing this already with our early uh, test teams, like they're reporting significant changes in what it feels like to be in meetings mm. and significant changes in, in how they're working together. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the holy grail for, yeah, for collaboration software. So we're pretty excited. All right. Continued success. And we'll see you all next time on This Week in Startups. Bye-bye. <laughs>